Hello and welcome to Fintech Insider Insights. I'm Adam Davis. Today we're going to be discussing the future of investing. So before we get started, we have a message from our friends over at Finnovate. You can join them at Finnovate Europe in Berlin on the 11th to the 13th of February, built around live seven-minute demos of the latest fintech innovations. Fintech Europe is the continent's premier fintech event, networked with more than 1,200 senior-level attendees with more than 50% from financial institutions and gain insight from 150 expert speakers who will be sharing their insights on the future of finance. For more information, visit finnovateeurope.com and quote VIP code 11FS. Yay! for a 20% discount on your registration. Again, that code, if you didn't remember it, is 11FS. Okay, let's get on with the show. So long gone are the days where millionaires are the only ones allowed to buy stocks and shares. But what does the future hold for retail investors in this space? To help me find the answer to that question, along with many others, are these fantastic returning guests. Uh, first one, uh, Victor Nebohoy, uh, the CMO of Free Trade. Welcome back. Thanks. Great to be back. Good stuff. Uh, Joe Parkin, head of banks and digital at BlackRock, friend of the show. Great to be back. Happy New Year, everyone. Happy New Year. Uh, and Adam French, founder of Scalable Capital. Thanks for having me. Okay, cool. Let's get on with the show. Um, so let's start by bringing up uh, a relative biggie to just gently ease us in, which is the democratization of investing. So, you know, a nice small topic. Um, on our last Wealth and Investing show, which uh, dates back to last year, we had a lot of debate about whether or not democratizing investing uh, and in effect targeting the masses is moral. Um, so I guess evidence by low commission trading, more accessibility, and thus proximity to, I guess, risky investments. Um, any more thoughts on this or to build on the conversation, certainly of uh, sort of investing trends over the last six months or so? Yeah, I'm, I'm happy to kick off. When, when I was uh, reading this question in the prep document, I, I almost fell off my chair. I did not realize, <laughs> to, to be honest, uh, I, di I didn't realize there was a discussion about whether uh, democratizing investing is 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 moral or immoral. Uh, so uh, after I gathered my thoughts, uh, being shocked by this question, my, my first thought was that, in my opinion, what's uh, what's immoral is that the S&P 500 uh, returned almost 30% in 2019. And Warren Buffett and his friends and institutions, they, they benefited from that. But, you know, the regular consumer did not. Yeah, it's a it's a fair shout. Playing the percentages, you're absolutely right. But what is um, so? I think the like the general theme is that because uh, the accessibility of these platforms and I suppose the um, the entry level from a deposit perspective is so low now, uh, and it is so accessible, it means that people who are uneducated obviously may potentially put their money into I guess what risky shares would be. I'll give sort of a view of it because you could kind of obviously put your money into let's say the blue chip stocks, the apples, etc. But then you know for every apple that you might invest in, you got kind of like the oil production company out of the Bahamas, which is slightly more risky, but yet accessible nevertheless. Um, so I think, I think we need just to, to pull it up a level, right? And what's happened over the last uh, 15, 20 years is a shift in the responsibility around saving and investing um, from the state and the corporate onto the individual. Um, you know, so this is the, the theme that retirement um, you think about it 15 years ago, um, you'd work for probably one or two companies throughout your whole career. And at the end of your time with them, you'd retire and they would pay you an income for the rest of your life. That is no longer the case. And individuals now have to take responsibility of their retirement. And so I think like understanding that responsibility and how we bring people up the curve is super, super important. And I think that the democratization of investing, the doc democratization of advice, um, the democratization of education around this sort of stuff is, is, is really, really important because actually people need to understand it. They need to understand it's now their responsibility to save every mm -hmm. month and then invest. And, and investing is 
you know, you can save as much as you like, but investing is the only way you're really going to achieve your longer term goals, um, you know, given where um, how much, you know, when you put a deposit in your account, how much interest you get off it. Um, so I just think it's pull it up a level. It, it is everything to this this country and, and our people. I think the the debate last time as well was around um, this responsibility that, that people now have and is the right approach with this large cohort of people, uh, pretty much everyone that needs help with their retirement, is it leave them to their own devices um, and, and, and let them pick uh, maybe from a list or from a, a Best Buy list or, or from a universe of, of assets or um, would you rather have somebody manage the money for them, maybe provide them with some advice rather than kind of what we know in the regulatory space is more as guidance yeah. um, and, and and what is the right path to take most people down? And um, my, my view on this is that um, it's kind of a, a horses for courses type thing. Um, there are there are many people out there, uh, and obviously, if you look at the growth of um, things like Robinhood in the U.S. Um, and, and free trades growth here in the U.K., you know, there are a cohort of people that that want to do that. Uh, and I'm one of them. I'm a free trade client. You know, and um, they've got a, a great uh, DIY um, trading experience, um, better than better than a lot of the incumbent offerings uh, out there. And um, and uh, but for, for ourselves, the hypothesis is that um, there is a massive cohort of people that actually need help um, and they're kind of in a, on a slightly different journey um, and what, rather what they're looking for is for somebody to do it for them um, and to hold their hand through that process and obviously when you when you do that uh, you've got uh, some regulatory guide rails that you have to stay between uh, and this is kind of what we always call is kind of discretionary investment management or advice yeah. um, and so I think the debate is is more around can you leave everyone to their own devices and is that the right thing to do uh, versus should everybody have a fiduciary sitting there and managing their money for them? Um, you know, we've taken the hypothesis that, that we would rather go uh, on the main part for, for people who, who actually want everything to be managed for them um, but totally understand uh, in, the other, in the other side of it why there would be a cohort of people that, that want to go out there and, and educate themselves a little bit more, get into the detail a little bit mm. more. Um, you know, I'm, I'm one of them. <laughs> um, but there are a lot of people, um, you know, when I talk to family and friends back home who who just don't want to interact with it at all. Yeah, uh, my thoughts on that are it's, it's, it's a little bit like driving, right? Like, you know, there's a learning process um, and then you can drive your own vehicle. It doesn't mean that, you know, if you're an accident-free society and, and all that stuff, like bad stuff happen, happens, you you know, some, some people might invest their money in, in, in the incorrect thing. But, but what we see is that this cohort that you described, Adam, is, is actually getting larger and larger and larger. So may, maybe it's not the democratization of, of investing per se, but the democratization of the knowledge and, and the education. Uh, that 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 really matters. If 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 people don't receive that, that that's obvi- that obviously sets them up for failure. But we, as an execution only stockbroker, we consider our responsibility really high in terms of how we educate educate people. So invest a, a lot of time and money into creating content mm. that you actually want to read. Yeah, I was going to mention the education side of it, and actually just get your thoughts around around the table in terms of how good you think the investment advice is at the moment totally understanding the fact that some falls into sort of regulatory categories so you can't give certain type of advice but I suppose um, if you're self-serving from an educational perspective and you're reading some of I don't know the blogs that are produced by uh, platforms and wealth managers etc digital wealth managers how good is that and and can would you advise be careful obviously when you answer this but can you advise people that that is uh, a good source of I suppose content and information actually just sourcing the internet from reputable providers? Um, so, so advice as a term is um, 
very defined and very loaded. Yes, so, so we, actually, yeah, I, I, we can take let, let, Let's avoid that, but <laughs> let, let's call it education, right? Yeah. So um, when, we, when, when we started, we, we looked at the landscape of, of content uh, and education that's available. And what we, uh, what we observed was that uh, specifically for the, for the audience, we, we target uh, millennials and, and even younger um, there is not really content that they w- would want to consume. I- if you really consider like how you spend your day and how you consume content, um, you know, you look at maybe, I don't know, your Facebook feed and there is interesting stuff there. Uh, you know, I check out Reddit all the time, you know, really funny cat pictures and all that. So so we are up against that sort of spend of your time, right? So to really democratize um, investing and the knowledge about investing, we, we are up against this sort of content. So our responsibility is to make investing content, finance content, really, really interesting and break down the barriers that way. Um, I sort of completely concur with that. I think there's there's three problems here. The, the first one is educating people is really hard to do unless there's an intent from that person. Okay, so uh, I think there's a huge amount of content out there and everyone has content. And I think lots of that content is a really, really good. Um, but if you don't want to go and find it, um, that's the issue. So the second part, I think, is how do we get people engaged um, who aren't engaged? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think um, potentially we've we've gone around that in the wrong way. We focused on the product. Yeah. Um, it's a little bit like trying to sell a car by talking about the engine. Like people generally, real petrol heads, um, are going to buy cars because of engines. The 95% of the population buy it because they like the color, they like the seats, they like the look and feel of it. Um, so I think that's the second problem. How do we really kind of find a level of engagement? I think we're getting there um, with some of the things that people are putting out, like bike side chunks. Um, and and to be honest, like we shouldn't be talking about the product. We should be talking about all the hygiene factors that sit around it, like you know how you should be um, even just like investing rather than saving, like yes. taking your money out of cash and all that sort of stuff. The third thing I think, which which I think is 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 more a uh, governmental um, item is just around education in schools like if i could have one wish or leave one legacy i think it would actually be that that the value of compounding is mm. understood by every single stu- school leader and i'm sure there's lots of things we could replace on the curriculum um you know so we believe education in schools um you know is 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 super important um just in helping people kind of leaving school with a better understanding of their finances and be able to help them manage it better yeah i agree i mean i think yeah i completely agree i remember when i was at, at school and then i came out of school my dad always sort of had funds or whatever else and he'd always sort of uh, he's an accountant so we go on about you know the value of money and the value of investing quite a lot this day and age given what potentially might happen let alone what has happened to interest rates you know sort of over the next year you guys have almost got a marketing message ready made for you you know you can go out to the market and say you know it, it's so clear from the percentages where you should be putting your money and where you should be playing um, so- it is amazing the education just hasn't got to that point on mass yet it's hard to, to disagree with i think anything that anyone said there um and i think that you know what, what, what victor was saying around the kind of the content style production you know who's it who's it targeted to i think that the, the reason you're starting to see the likes of free trade and uh, to a certain extent ourselves as well is kind of make that that content more um kind of uh, have a broader reach and, and especially for a younger market is that for the first time this younger this younger market this this millennial cohort have got access to a service like this so you know the likes of the incumbent DIY stockbrokers out there, they never really thought about this this target market before because their average age of investors was about was about fifty five or even yeah. sixty. Um, ours is down at, at forty eight. I'm not sure what what yours currently is, but it's probably lower than that. Yeah, um, you know, so I think that that's a that's fantastic that you've got got you know um, people within this market now now providing messages to uh, to a, an audience that never would have. Re- 
previously received it, and if they're using your service to test that uh, investing, then then that's uh, that's that's a great starting point. One uh, just to pick up on the point you made, Adam, on on the interest rate side. So um, scalable, you know, sitting here in London, um, you know, we have we have UK clients, but we also have a, a large base also in Germany. Uh, we have clients, B two B clients in in Spain and Austria, and we've got uh, direct to consumer uh, clients uh, in in Austria and Germany. And um, in the in the European market, obviously, you've got a negative interest rate environment. Um, yeah. to, to deal with there. And so the marketing message is even more clear uh, than, <laughs> yeah. than it is here because um, people are, are actually losing money month on month sitting in their savings account. And, and as, as Victor mentioned, on the on the flip side, you've got equity markets performing very, very well. Um, and you want uh, to have more and more people participating in, in, in that type of um, asset growth, um, uh, you know, due to due to the fact that uh, these these negative interest rates are pushing investment into, into riskier assets. Uh, just think, a com- sorry, uh, no. sorry just, just a comment on, on something you said. So everyone has content. I, I agree with that, but not everyone has the right content. I, you made a very interesting point about petrol hats. That is not the right type of content for the vast majority of people, the equivalent of that for investing. So what we are trying to do is telling stories. One of the best performing type of content that we have, um, free advice to anyone who creates content, is actually telling the story of a company uh, such as Grex, for example. Mm. Very meaningful, very very uh, visible company here in the UK. People love it. It was actually a startup at one point uh, in Newcastle, right? Probably in the 80s or, or maybe even uh, earlier. They kind of built up something, something amazing and they are pivoting toward um, the vegan movement. It's an amazing story, and that's an investment that's available in the free trade app. That's available in, you know, I don't know if Scalable has um, um, uh, that, that level of, of investment, available across lots of, uh, of stockbrokers. And uh, I invested, uh, my return is 30%. Mm. Doesn't mean that everyone will get 30% out of Greg's, but, but that story one of our team produced, that story, and ca- it kind of switched me on. Mm. And, and the goal here is to switch people on that investing is actually not something boring. It's not something that yeah. should be considered like some, how some, you know, some people consider like, you know, like a mathematics class or like a physics class. Oh, yeah, it's like so much like detail. It, it's, it's actually something really, really exciting. It's full yeah. of stories. So this is, I think the question we're all trying to solve for is how do we engage more and more people? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think there's been some really successful ways of doing it and just a change in mindset. Like we didn't, you know, when, when the sort of health and fitness craze started, we weren't trying to get everyone to go out and be, you know, um, sports science, uh, do sports science degrees. Um, what we've done is we've taken down the little hygiene factors so whether it was five a day, and now seven a day, or water, drink more water. Is it or seven the, a day now? I think I think it's gone. <laughs> no, up, I didn't know. <laughs> anyway, or um, behind, or uh, you know, or just the the gym programs. You can't open a newspaper or whatever. And so I think you know, little things like um, I love the whole Roundup technology movement. Yes. Sorry, the Roundup savings movement because previously the message from the industry was don't have your coffee in the morning and put that money into now. That is a that's a kind of like I want, I like my coffee in the morning. I want to still have my coffee in the morning. Now it's have your coffee in the morning, and we'll round up the change and put it into something. So you so so it's a kind of win win for both people. And so the more of those things I think we can mm. we can do as an industry, what I call hygiene factors, um, I think is 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 super positive. So I have a, a hypothesis that um, in the next five or ten years, 
um, you're going to get a movement away from you know, what we're calling digital wealth management or robo-advice um, and more and more into the fact that um, everybody will have access to this type of service mm. but through a trusted distributor. Um, and if you look at kind of the scalable partnership so far with the likes of Santander in Spain and ING in Germany, you know, it's it's about trying to get the, the this type of service, either we're a technology provider or it's our brand on it, um, into the hands of more and more people um, because um, people will just engage with it more often in a way in which they're not really they're not even recognizing that they are yes. engaging with it. So the best kind of uh, kind of example that, that I'm trying to relate to is um, you know how integrated payments is with Uber. You know, yeah. one of one of the greatest things about such a service is that you don't really have to think about, you know, well, where's that five pound note, or, or do I have the, the correct change on me? Um, and it's just seamless. You know, you get in the car, you get out the car, and payments are done. Um, I have a, a vision that it will be the same with investing one day, um, either through the workplace or through a tr- another trusted entity like a financial services firm, uh, maybe through a fintech or, or through a tech provider. Um, that it will just be done for you. Uh, you know, they'll have enough information on you. They'll be able to help you to say if your retirement, there'll be roundups happening in the background. Some of your salary will be put in a way. If you've got an expensive month, it'll be going back into your bank account mm-hmm. to pay for things. And I think that future is not that far off. Uh, they, yeah, they, I think uh, definitely if you look at the, I suppose, the reasoning behind open finance sure, and, exactly. what, and what that might provide, I think that's informed investment decisions is probably one strand of it, but informed just full stop, as in they understand your full financial picture. They know how much mortgage you've got, you know what your debt p- position is like, just leads to those better, more seamless services, more action-based or actionable-based insights. Um, actually, interesting you say that because uh, obviously one of the big trends, I suppose, within investing at the moment is how you put, I suppose, an investment service with uh, sort of a myriad of other services of portfolios and the obvious uh, nod to that is what potentially Revolut could do this year in the UK. So you're almost, you know, pending a stocks and shares service on off the back of a transactional account. Uh, do you see that, I guess, um, Victor, this might be more most applicable to you, but do you see, I suppose, um, that combination of, uh, I suppose, transaction account, understanding someone's financial position, probably on a day-to-day basis, not yet having the benefits of open finance, but then with the stocks and shares element to it as something that in the future, is, is that the winning play or is is the level of disruption at the moment uh, almost going to plateau from a features perspective right now? Um well, it, it's, it's it's somewhat similar to this like uh, financial command center vision, a little bit like um, a comprehensive view of your finances and all that. I, we, we, both Adam and I think we, we discuss this uh, through and through. We, we think it's a little bit of a mirage. That we, we think that's, uh, that, that's a hypothesis that that's not being proven. Um, I, I, I think we as in individuals, as, as consumers, you know, I, I thought about it from that perspective. I'm not sure I'm comfortable one company having like, uh, absolute view of, of my finances. You have to make a personal decision as you educate yourself around your finances, how much you are comfortable to have in a stocks and shares ISA, make that call. Maybe, um, you know, if, if, if you are so inclined, you can you can track it on a spreadsheet. Maybe some 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 products, some services will pick up a little bit that uh, that aggregate that, that sort of view. But uh, we've seen companies talking about this financial command center vision, and we haven't really seen a lot of progress, to be honest. We in, uh, I guess 
Yeah, so that, I suppose that progress point is is super key. Like, would you say the industry at the moment, it feels very much like uh, the the B2C, the mobile banking play from about three years ago, four years ago, maybe when Monzo and Starling started the 2015-ish. It feels like it's kind of being replicated now. So do you see it sort of, is this like peak building before customer acquisition? And do you see, uh, customer acquisition is kind of a horrible way to put it, but do you see sort of an influx of customers, not necessarily this year, but maybe next year when there's like three or four competing offers? with a mature base or do you see it or, or are you going for customer acquisition now I guess is the yeah I, I think it's a very similar situation to how challenger banking was uh, about three years ago um, it's it's definitely it's definitely um, uh, building the services right now and, and 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 racing to have all the necessary components of the of the service in place uh, companies have very different uh, sort of hypothesis how they want to build the service our hypothesis was that trust is essential if you build um, a stockbroker or any other financial services company. So we invested into getting our regulation in, in, in 2017, becoming members of the London Stock Exchange. Some other fintechs invest in features or, or, or technology a, a, a little bit more. So the race is on and uh, we have 90,000 customers now. Uh, so we saw an eight, 800% increase in, in 2019 and an increasing, increasing number of those people are people whose first investing experience is with free trade. Mm. Um, so it's a, it's a very exciting market because um, challenger banking, so everyone has a current account. Um, people understand it right away, whereas here, there is a this two-sided blade of having to educate people, but also a lot of lot of people have not been touched by investing in stockbroking yet. So it's a really interesting market. I think the the interesting thing is that um, you've you're, you're, I think you're really starting to see the beginning of that kind of exponential growth across all these types of investing firms. So free trade have, having a great 2019. I'm sure you'll have a great 2020 as well. You know our, ourselves now um, at, at a little over sixty thousand clients. You know, short, just shy of two billion pounds of assets under management, trading about five million times a year um, for clients in the, in their accounts. So five million individual trades. You know, these, there's a there's a, a definite proof point that that there's a demand out there for for our services. And the the most exciting thing about that is, I believe it's just started. Um, yep. You know, we've never grown so quickly as we as we're growing in the last couple of months. And that's on a solution which um, which is is a great solution. It's better than I would say ninety five percent of uh, of of a of a solution. Solutions that people have access to, um, but there's also so much more in the backlog. Uh, there's so much more to come, um, and I think right now, if you look at the differences between, uh, and I think this is it is also the same in the digital banking space, the differences between kind of what we can do and what what some of the incumbent players can do. You know, there's arguments we said that it's you know not that far ahead, but it's the tech stack that mm. we're sitting on and the product development lifecycle and processes that we have that we can very quickly bring new functionality to market and very quickly accelerate away um, and integrate more functionality different service offerings within the scalable capital brand on the scalable capital platform. Um, and, and I think that's that's just really starting now as you've got kind of, I would say, you know, within the investing space, five, ten firms that are kind of getting towards – you know, a, a kind of a nice early part of their their growth scale. Um, you know, it's it's proven out. It's beyond kind of MVP. It's uh, it's beyond product market fit. Um, and kind of the next stage is okay. How fast can they accelerate away from here? And I think there's a, there's an argument you said there's a, a handful of firms at least um, that are, that are currently on that trajectory. Which yeah, just means what you know what happens in the next three to five years. No, I was just going to say I, I think. Um, you know, I think people are absolutely going to want, um, and I don't think it necessarily needs to be one solution, but like someone is going to pull it all together. 
um, and whether they're passing off to different firms or recommending the best firm for you, given your circumstances. Um, but if you don't think that open finance is going to happen, um, you know, like it, it absolutely has to. And I think some of the best firms have done that already in other industries and going to go do this, uh, you know, in financial services. Um, and so, and if you actually really think about it, it's kind of what uh, an advisor does, a financial advisor does. So they sit with you and they take a huge amount of data off you and then they come back to you and say, here we go. Now, if we're going to scale advice um, and help people, to have to one day be independent of their salary, have better financial futures, be financially more healthy. Um, we absolutely need to start doing that. And there's like by sucking in the data, then we can start to really make more elegant like decisions and advise the client customer um, so that they actually get to a point where you know. Um, and we can scale advisors as well. Like you know, it's almost like um, um, uh, you know the, um, the 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 medical industry, right? Is like it's starting to do a really good or good job of using technology to triage mm. customers yes. to work out or, or 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 people to work out when do they actually need to see a doctor or a GP or can this problem be solved by simply giving them a, a prescription or or mm. um, or not? So. I love I love the goal of having an I like an IFA in your pocket. I know that's what's kind of that was the strapline of the robo advisors um, once upon. A time but i mean true ifa so you know to your point i think the cost of going to an ifa i suppose initially is relatively prohibitive for uh, sort of you, you know your average retail consumer because to your you know the cost of actually accumulating that data in the first instance from time or via the spreadsheets or the algorithm or whatever it might be is quite high yeah. um and actually it was really interesting to think about what then happens to the ifa industry if that kind of service is democratized to the point where you've got it in your pocket you know well, how much what, what are the levels that they need to then subscribe to to actually continuing to charge no, I mean, I think I think this is it, it's been too bifurcated for too long. Like it's it's either been robo or human, and I think um, where the industry is getting to, and probably the most exciting part of this is actually is actually saying, you know, in the UK, three million people um, uh, in two thousand and eighteen received advice, right, um, versus a fifty million adult population. Um, okay, so the actual question is, how do we make sure we scale those advisors? So to to to, to the point around medical, um, we kind of a lot of the a lot of the stuff that they're currently doing today could probably be automated and digitalized. But the advisors' time, there's twenty five thousand advisors in the UK. We don't see that number changing um, anywhere fast. We actually make sure that those advisors are being used at the right time. So mm. we're triaging um, and using systems and data to make sure that actually when you do get through to an advisor, it's a really good and valuable use of his time and he's able to provide you advice it's not can you send me this or what's this doing or how's this working yeah. I think a lot of that stuff can be done by chatbots and that sort of stuff and that's the only way we're actually going to go from 3 million people receiving financial advice in the UK to 10 million which mm. would be 20% of the population to add our population to 25 million um, so that has to be part of what we're trying to do here. And I think the industry is really starting to acknowledge um, it's not robo or, or either anything else. Um, it's actually combining the two yeah. together. And I, I, th I think the, the, the kind of key terms in my mind are um, it's service and convenience. Um, and so I do have a, a feeling that in the medium term, somebody will pull it all together um, because uh, convenience typically trumps everything else when it comes to, to, to manage or to dealing with a, a certain solution. Um, and if you do have that in, in one place, I know, you know, if it's going to be quicker and easier, then then I'm probably going to use it as well. Yeah. Um, but the, but on the service element, um, you know, talking about advisors and digital, um, I think that the one of the main 
things that people forget with with such a with such a, a robo advisor or, or even you know what, what free trade are doing it's not just a product that people are buying you know they're not just basically going to a supermarket and saying you know I'll have that one yeah. um, it's all the service around yeah. it um, you know Hargreaves have done a really good job historically at providing you know they are a supermarket but they've got the service layer on top of it and you know people talk so fondly of that service and I think that you know when we when we talk to our customer base and when you look at other fintechs out there where they really really excel is in is in in the ability to service their clients in mm. the right way at the right time with the right information uh, because obviously they're, they're holding a lot more data on it they can be a lot more personalized with the message that they're that they're providing their client bases um, and the advisors provide a different type of service mm. and there will be people out there that want it in the same way there are people that use our, our, our solution right now um, who specifically don't want to talk to people yeah uh, you know they, they actually see a benefit of being able to do something in in their own time you know they, they can reach out on web chat or they can they can call us if they, if they need to they know we're here, um, but they but they they know they don't really need that type of. Solution. And I guess one of the good things you can do off the back of that is, I guess, op- optionality of, of cost. So, um, as you mentioned, Hargreaves. So I, without going Hargreaves bashing, because I have an Hargreaves Lansdowne account, I got charged eleven ninety five the other day for a trade. Um, I'm not one of the most frequent traders, so I get I get hit with top dollar. Um, but I suppose um, justifying that cost for somebody that uh, versus obviously a commission free trading platform. How at what point do you think you know this? And they do it via the fact that they you know might I don't know put your trade up the queue if you like and, and do instant trading or the services and support that go around it. But in reality, how far has that that line got to go? I guess let's say is it a year, two years? And do you see like you know given costs of trading at the moment has been I suppose commoditized down to a very very low level? Um, I guess you know just around the table sort of sense check of how long can they justify that kind of charge? Well, I, I mean, it's it's very interesting to look at the most developed market in the world, the United States, right? So what, what you are seeing is that incumbent stockbrokers, they they implement uh, uh, zero commissions because they, they sim- uh, simply have to compete in an environment where millennials, the oldest millennials are 40 years old, basically, at this point. They have uh, meaningful jobs, uh, pulling salaries that are meaningful, and they have to invest that somehow. And uh, in an environment where uh, the UI uh, of um, uh, of, of, of the local uh, challenger stockbroker is much better. The pricing is much better. They they have to they have to um, uh, they have to compete uh, there. And uh, in, in the next couple of years, I, I'm sure we will see that in the UK as well. Yeah, see, I don't share that. I think um, you know the US is a is a actually a pretty unique market. It started on that um, sort of shift from the institution and the state and the corporate in the late 80s, early 90s. Um, you've got tickers being talked about outside school. Games. Um, it's just simply, I think it's going to take a generation um, in in the UK to get to a place where we are as, as savvy, we have the education. Mm. And it may never happen because, it, you know, there may be another solution that steps in and does it for us. Um, so I don't share this thing that suddenly there's going to be, a, you know, a rush to the bottom. People still value service. They value someone to speak to on the phone. Um, and, um, you know, I, I also think that we're trying to solve a different problem than mm. um, for the people that currently so the people that are currently using, doing their own investments, the DIY investors, whatever it is, three million of them in the UK, um, actually, um, you know, they are pretty savvy and can shop around and can change between the various different firms.
firms on a price basis. Um, and now that the great thing is now there's the choice to do that. Mm. Um, I actually think what we're really trying to solve for, and this is around kind of purpose and financial inclusion, is all these people that currently aren't doing anything mm. um, and either sitting on lots of cash or actually spending too much um, beyond their means and are probably never going to be able to retire. Yeah, I always find it how interesting um, the the number of reasons people give for for trying out a new service. So there are a cohort of people who want to save money, um, and and I think that you know that having a commission free trading platform is is going to be something of value to them. Um, but then there are another cohort that either either go for the convenience, they want to save time, um, or there's the the ones that you know who put more of a focus on trust, and more of a focus on service. And so I get I get the impression um, that it's not going to be a winners takes all. In time, in terms of like price to the price, uh, kind of move to the bottom. Like yeah. people don't seem to be that price sensitive. Um, you know, the, mentioning Hargreaves, but also St James's Place. Yeah. You know, very successful. Um, you know, uh, wealth management firm here in the UK, um, and and growing every single year. Um, and you know, they're they're not very, uh, or let's say they're um, on the higher end uh, of, of what you would have to pay versus a robo advisor. And sure. obviously, so much so because they they've got a personal relationship with their uh, with their clients at the end of the day, um, and uh, and you know they're they're very very successful. So it's not clear to me uh, that price is the only factor, um, but I think prices are probably going to go down rather than up. <laughs> so uh, I, I agree with some of these views, um, um, but uh, price—it's not just about like paying for something. It's a, it's an impediment. It's a barrier. It's almost like a UI element that you just don't want to deal with when you, when you get into your investing. Uh, there are lots of other. Um, other uh, barriers as well. The UI is a barrier. Um, you know, most most of the incumbents they don't have great mobile apps. That 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 that's something that you know they they have to transform and become technology companies to to implement that and and compete on that level. I, I do agree that the US is a, is a different market. Um, switching back to to Joe's point, um, culturally investing is a thing in the US, whereas in Europe it's not a thing. Uh, but but I do disagree, disagree with the notion that tickers will not be discussed uh, as as we implement it. It's kind of like a whole movement as uh, as commission free investing is available. People are are looking at ETFs. That, that's what we see as a starting point. They invest typically. Uh, a lot of their portfolio in, into ET, ETFs, and they look at companies and they start discussing companies. So I don't don't see why in the next couple of years there would not be some sort of shift. Maybe not as dramatic as in the US, but um, but my expectation is that we will see people being more switched on to investing. Mm-hmm. If you just think about you know kind of like the phases of kind of like what we underwent, uh, crypto was you know very controversial, but at least it switched people on very young people that I put my money into something and I can end up with more money. Mm. It wasn't potentially the most wise asset class to <laughs> kind of like bet large amounts of money on, right? But but it's, still, it switched people on, and we, we saw a lot of emails, a lot of inquiries coming on. Oh, I made a little little bit of money on crypto. I'm looking at uh, stocks now. I want to put down a deposit in like a, a buy to let or, or or that sort of stuff. So I think y- younger people are are getting more and more. Switched switched on uh, to, to their finances and investing. So so I, I foresee a little bit of a shift. Cool. I was going to say, Joe, um, on that, there's a, there's another potentially seismic shift uh, coming through, which might influence it again, which is social investing. And I know you've talked about it quite a lot, and, and we've talked about it on this podcast before. Um, but from a, do you see that as, and I know there was a recent announcement from BlackBook, which we can go into in a sec, but from a, I suppose from a, um, a, a social and cultural impact, do you see that being... Uh, I guess one of the seismic uh, influences on how people are going to invest in the future, let's say over the next five to 10 years. 
I mean, absolutely. I think um, you know it's been it's been building for a while now. Um, but I think it's a, a fantastic way to to engage people, um, and also um, you know kind of a way to. There's a huge movement out there um, um, of you know whether it's people going to supermarkets with their own bags, with Tupperware, um, you know, ripping the the wrapping off of uh, fruit uh, and veg. Um, and actually, um, you know, all these things are great. Um, but actually, you know, like the most effective way is probably to make sure that your pension fund or um, your investments are actually doing something simple. So we're starting to deploy capital, um, you know, to companies that are standing up for these values. Um, so from my perspective, actually, um, you know, like not only is it just critical anyway, um, uh, but it's also such a good way to get people who aren't currently engaged in their finances. You know, when you sit around a table and we start to, people are really passionate about this to comment, uh, this topic, and then suddenly you say, well, what are you doing in your pension fund or what are you doing in your investments? Um, you know, so so our view is that, um, you know, um, you know, sustainability um, and sustainability will just be um, an integral part of investing. Mm. I mean, I've stolen this head so- headline from a, from an internet site, so it's not mine. But they've they've said that BlackRock are the world's largest asset manager and have just become the world's largest sustainable investor, which is pretty cool. Yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, we, so we, we accelerated our efforts um, around sustainable investing last week. Um, I think it's been very positively taken by the industry and our clients. Um, and like, listen, we believe that sustainability um, <clears throat> should be the new standard for investing. Um, and, um, you know, we're seeing that every day um, in the work we do with our clients. Um, and I think there is a huge, huge runway um, and, and particularly around some of the stuff we've been talking about mm. because it does get people engaged, it does get people excited and it does get people passionate. And if you really want to make a change, like, you know, doing it through your pension fund where they're allocating capital to companies that are making a difference mm. is a super important way to do it. I was going to say, is, is the real seismic shift B2C, I guess, for consciousness, but it, it's in the B2B space? Or is that, you know, I suppose convincing the funds and the pension funds and and those kind of companies to get on board with it as well? And, and how much influence, I guess, do you see in, with with yourselves in doing that, I mean, I think I actually think that um, that the industry's on board and everyone's moving in the right direction, and, mm-hmm. and it's and it's just something, you know, something that that has just become common practice now. Um, it, I don't go into a meeting or I don't go and um, talk to a client without this this topic coming up, and so I think it's going to happen um, both demand from the bottom up with consumers, um, and I think it's a great it's a great way to in, it, it, like engage them mm-hmm. um, and make people aware of investing. So yeah. it's got a it's got an indirect consequence as well around financial inclusion and financial well-being. Yeah. Um, but I also think it's it's about who you are as a company um, and what you want to stand for. I think uh, the, sorry, from, sorry, from from kind of where we sit, kind of sitting in the middle between the end client and the and the asset managers. Um, yeah, we're seeing that shift. Um, but the I think the most exciting element of it is how much the asset management process has changed, even in a short period as the last five years. Um, you know, there was there was uh, a movement only two three years ago to talk about kind of your ESG or SRI type portfolios versus the non-equivalent and I think that's starting to go away Um, you know whereas kind of ESG used to be kind of an external factor which you would either switch on or switch switch off it now feels like it's more a fundamental element of of the asset allocation process of the larger asset managers so rather than be like look this is our SRI solution um, and this is our non-SRI solution it's more no this is our solution and 
you know, ESG factors, SRI type components are already taken into account when when building those those core solutions, and that that's that's happened in a, in an unbelievably quick pace uh, mm. from kind of you know only founding scalable five years ago. You know that wasn't even a conversation yeah. five years ago, and now it feels like we're accelerating drastically towards change. Yeah, let, let, let me support that with some data points because uh, this is the point where we like fully agree with each other. I think, and uh, so at Free Trade, we we are in a privileged position because we. We have a view of a certain age group or age groups. So the average age of our customers is 30, the mode age, so the most frequent age is 27. And uh, what we see is, so, so we get, um, you know, uh, customer support inquiries all the time. Uh, very often a question is, um, you know, how do I get started investing, right? And we, are, we don't have advice products. So we just point them to resources, blog posts, uh, get them started on their investment journey. But, you know, we don't, we don't advise them. But very often what these people say is that, oh, by the way, I want to invest in sustainable stuff only, uh, sustainable companies. And what we saw, so we look, looked at our data for uh, 2019. It's actually very interesting to see over the course of the year what people invest in. And what we saw was that investing in companies that are fighting climate change, uh, green energy companies, is skyrocketed. Mm. Uh, so we saw a 32-fold increase in the number of people that, uh, the number of our users that invested uh, in these companies. So we actually made a very neat little list. Uh, and we even correlated it to timestamps and all that stuff. It's, it's, it's fascinating. And, and the pace, how that actually happened from the beginning of 2019 to the end was was incredible. Mm. I think Davos at the moment, I, I keep seeing in the papers, whenever anyone mentions Davos, they're mentioning is it Greta Thunberg is there at the moment. And that seems to be getting more press than just about anybody else, any business leader. It's like, where is she right now? Is she on stage? Is she not? It's, kind of, it's, it's really interesting. Definitely seeped into the social consciousness, which is great. And, and people are starting to take action. We're seeing, um, you know, increasingly every month, uh, more and more flows into um, our sustainable products. Mm. Um, you yeah, know, let, let me support that, Joe, with the data point. The uh, clean energy ETF iShares is, is quite quite popular. It's usually in our top 10. That's good. Economically, is do you think now is the time to push this because economically it works because everyone's on board? Therefore, um, I'm just thinking from a, I guess, a, I'm, you know, putting a money hat on, I guess. If you think about the returns that you could have got, let's say, five, ten years ago, investing in, I guess, non-sustainable companies versus now investing in sustainable companies. Is it sort of a wide, is it a wider nod to the trend of those companies that they've changed themselves to the point where now economically actually also makes sense to invest in those companies as well as it being something for, from a social perspective? Yeah, definitely. So we looked at the returns as well because it's wanting to put your money to sustainable companies. But if you lose, it, if you lose it all, obviously that's yeah. not 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 going to go on this this movement for long. Um, so S and P five hundred um, twenty nine percent was the return for uh, twenty nineteen. The the FTSE hundred, the the hundred biggest companies in the in the UK, in the London uh, uh, Stock Exchange, uh, that that was a measly twelve yeah, percent, if I remember well. correctly. So so now you. You take, take these benchmarks because it's very important to know how your investments are doing in the context of the market, right? Yes. And uh, we looked at companies um, uh, such as the uh, or, or ETFs as well, such as the clean energy ETF. And, and hopefully, I'm quoting the data right, but it, it, it was, it was in, the return of that ETF was in line with the S&P 500, or maybe slightly even above. I recall 33 percent, but you should Google it. I'm, I'm, I think we will have a blog post mm. if you invested in Tesla, which is a vanguard of uh, of clean. Energy, 
energy, right? I mean, oh, that the, shares have gone yeah, exactly. Gone and on, yeah. what we, what we saw was that a, a lot of our investors called the Tesla trade early in the year, so they continuously invested um, from like the early parts of the year, particularly when the stock price was was low. Not everyone, of course, but but millennials kind of called called this trade early. Trade Why didn't early we have on. this podcast this time last year? Would have invested. <laughs> um, no, in fact, and I, I suppose from. Um, from a wider perspective, um, you guys all sort of do uh, different stuff, um, targeting potentially similar um, similar groups, but do, do position yourself definitely differently in the industry. How many, I guess, platforms can there be? So, you know, if we look at um, what we said earlier that uh, I guess the, the feature set has got such a, a long runway and we are, I guess, at the beginning of this precipice of getting more and more people involved in uh, in, in investing – are we seeing like a, a consolidation in any time soon or is it, you know, essentially how many competitors do you see yourselves having? Um, from from where we sit, kind of having a direct-to-consumer brand and doing a lot of work with, with kind of financial services partners, I think the theme that we've really seen pick up in the last, let's say, two years or so um, is that, um, yes, the, the startups were the first one there uh, in our in our space, but the financial services firms very quickly want to, uh, want to develop similar services for themselves. And a lot of them are taking the the route that they'll never be able to do it themselves. It'll be too either too expensive or it'll take too much time. Um, and so they're either partnering up with with firms like ourselves or they're, or they're, they're trying to um, work with kind of pure play B2B yeah. uh, wealth tech companies. Um, and they haven't really entered the market yet. Um, you know, you've seen uh, kind of the first wave, let's say, uh, about 12 months ago. Um, and, and ING was, was one of the first in, in Germany. You know, they've, um, they've, they've just been unbelievably successful. So I think if you look at their kind of assets standalone, um, they're the third biggest robo-advisor in, in Europe. Um, and uh, that's, that's behind us, obviously, being a larger portion of that assets and, and nutmeg here in the UK. Um, and I think that just really goes to show that if you have that trusted relationship uh, and you build the right solution, uh, it's not as easy as just building it. It's about, you know, understanding the full end-to-end uh, kind of success factors of, of building such a firm. You know, mm-hmm. you can't just build free trade. You can't just build scalable and, you know, put it out there and hope yes. um, that people will come and use you. It's it's really the hustle around distribution and, you know, and the, and the targeting and the service. Um, it's 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 a full package uh, that you need to fully understand, um, and and you know not every fintech out there fully understands that full package. Hence, you know some lack lack of success there. Uh, but the ones that do, I think, um, I think I think will continue to grow. Um, but they will definitely see pressure coming from these more trusted institutions that have more traditional mm. style relationships, um, where people will probably, for convenience reasons, um, you know, go go and uh, find find the solution for them. Mm. Um, and yeah, I think we're we're really only starting to see this right now. So I think uh, probably more pressure on on some of the long tail of the the fintech startups, um, but I think it'll support the the ones which have been able to to kind of already kind of prove the trust, convenience, price factors yeah. out there as well. So it's, it's interesting because I think we've gone to a stage where now, um, you know, the incumbents to Adam's point are really starting to understand the value of the fintechs. You know, probably two years ago we were still sort of thirteen year old school disco standing at either side of the hall <laughs> like you know boys and girls. Um, uh, but I think now we we're over that what i what i really would love to see happening and i can see it starting to happen is actually kind of an acknowledgement you know from the fintechs in terms of okay like how could we come together to deliver like a solution together to a b2b um that actually or or to an incumbent that actually really helps 
um, mm. you know, so um, like a, a and then how does that actually fit and work together in a seamless way through APIs? Um, and I, I think that would be really encouraging because actually, um, you know, each fintech has great specialisms doing certain parts of the value chain. Yeah. Um, and I think at the moment there's a little bit of reticence for them to build further and build further out to distract them, um, but also to allow other people in to share um, part of the pie. But I think as 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 they as, as fintechs become more successful, mm-hmm. um, I think then there'll be greater collaboration um, in order to to kind of yeah, um, to push that. build something more holistic. Yeah. It, it, it's, it's a great point. Um, I, I, I think a lot of the fintechs we are seeing are more uh, feature-based as opposed to kind of like a broader product or platform. Yeah. Uh, not everyone is like that. Not You know, I, I, I hate to brag, but with free trade, we, you know, uh, we kind of came to the conclusion very, very early on that it's not trivial to build a stockbroker. And if you build it, it cannot be a one-feature kind of play. Yeah. So um, one and a half years ago, we started building our, our, our own brokerage platform that not not many companies invest in. It's it's not not a trivial piece of work. Um, it's uh, it's basically where most of our engineering uh, w- was working on. So, what I kind of foresee that is that we have to move, as an industry kind of move away from the feature based. Maybe it was good, you know, in the early days as sort of like an attack vector to kind of build customer base, build a brand, start working on the on the trust and all these important components. But uh, but. Uh, these companies need to become more significant and then more mm. broad-based as opposed to kind of like a rounding of feature or something like that. Yeah. Um, one last question. Um, at the moment, we're in a significant bull market, as we know. Uh, it's been going on for many, many years. Um, business case models, you guys stand up if this thing's turned bare? <laughs> yeah, I think the, 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 when, when that question always comes up, um, there's a difference that needs to be recognized between somebody buying a product uh, and somebody buying the services of a, of a, of a robo-advisor, digital wealth manager, you know, a, a company like ourselves. And, um, and so, yeah, there will be, there will be downturns. We, we've already experienced them in the, in the five-year lifetime of our firm. I think the kind of worst kind of short-term performance period was, you know, some clients losing up to, up to 15, 20 percent, um, mm. you know, quickly recovering in the type of market environment that we're in. Uh, but we all already got tested kind of early days uh, in t- kind of seeing the communications that we need to put out the behavior of certain clients and the good news is like the the ability to reach out to clients you know based on their on the on how they interact with your service um, you know builds builds that layer of trust that they don't get if they're they're just buying something and being left to their own devices mm-hmm. so I actually think it's it's probably less relevant for a firm like ours and more more relevant for uh, somebody who just that has a transactional relationship with a client says look this is a fund for you um, good luck um, and you know come back if you've got any issues you know mm-hmm. we we talk to clients every day um, you know we, we we're there for them um, yeah I think that, I think if anything that's actually one of the benefits of, of, of our type of uh, business is that we can we can reach out to clients yeah. and help I think as long as you understand the client and the timelines they're operating to um, you know and this is where I think you sort of goal-based investing and having short medium and longer term goals mm-hmm. um, you know and you have to think about this in in the longer term uh, certainly when you're starting out um, you know we're talking about people that have you know just left school and university um, who are going to try and be saving for the next 40, 50 um, years. Um, and so that time horizon, um, you're obviously going to have bumps in the road, yeah. um, but you have to take a, a kind of long-term uh, a view on it, particularly if you're going to invest rather than than just save. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, just one more point. So we get these questions sometimes, or, or, or these questions specifically, um, what's going to happen when there is a recession, which 
will inevitably happen. That's just how how, we, uh, how, how things work. Uh, like Joe said, bombs in the road. Um, so we actually launched free trade uh, during a sort of mini bull market, uh, autumn of uh, 2018. We, we did not see an impact. Um, nevertheless, it's very important that people understand that these uh, these situations will occur. Um, and and now we are in a very long sustained bull market. Now is the time to educate everyone that these returns are not always going to be there, and sure. we have to be we have to over communicate that point as an industry. Yeah. A good point to finish on. Uh, so that wraps up today's discussion. Thank you all very much. That was uh, that was great. I really enjoyed that. Um, where can people find out about you and your company, Victor? Uh, go to freetrade.io or the App Store or, or Google Play. Uh, download the app uh, and on the chat service, just tell uh, tell the customer service team you are looking for me if you want to contact me and uh, tell, tell, tell them you heard me on the podcast. And that maybe we can agree on a password or something and they, they are going to pull me out of a meeting and we can chat. We'll do a hand signal. I like that. Yeah. Uh, Joe? Uh, either on LinkedIn or uh, blackrock.com. Cool. And Adam? Yeah, I guess just uh, Google Scalable Capital. Uh, you'll see what we're doing there. Uh, and if you want to kind of learn more about uh, what we're doing for our B2B partners, then you can reach out to me on LinkedIn as well. Cool. And you can find me at 11fs.com. Uh, so thanks for listening. If you want to join the discussion, uh, find us on social media, uh, at Fintech Insiders, on Twitter or LinkedIn or Facebook, Instagram, Periscope, we're everywhere, YouTube. <laughs> uh, we'd love to hear your thoughts on anything we've just discussed. Uh, just search 11fs for ease. Um, as usual, don't forget to subscribe if you, so you never miss an episode. And if you really love us, please leave us a review. Uh, that's all for this week. So thank you and goodbye. Goodbye.